If you're uh, new to New Hope, um, the name Ron Volutis may not mean a lot to you. Um, he was an elder that served here at New Hope and uh, previously at Trinity Church as well. Um, Ron died suddenly of a heart attack. Um, we believe it to be a, a massive heart attack about a, a week ago, a week ago last night. And um, after, after the, having the services this week, um, spoke with Rosalie last night, and uh, she found, sounds really tired, just very, very wore out. So we're going to take a minute and pray for her and for the Volutis family. But she wrote a note to you that she wanted me to read this morning. She's so grateful for the prayer support and love that she's felt this week, as, as well as the whole Volutis family. So let me share with you this note. Every morning holds a new and different proof that God's Holy Spirit is ministering to my saddened heart at the loss of my beloved. My spirit has vividly responded to hymns. The book I'd meant to put away is called A Vision of His Glory. She saved it and has been reading out of it this week. It's a book by Anne Graham's Lotz. It's a real comfort in some of the things I hardly understood before. The prayers of my friends at New Hope were known by our family on Thursday. Thank you. I am blessed to be Ron's wife and blessed to be a part of the family of God here at New Hope. She wanted me to share this passage with you, a, a verse uh, in which Paul was talking about his own end of the race. And so here's uh, what Rosalie put down. She said, when Paul was leaving Ephesus, he headed to Jerusalem and he gave a farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. And this is what he said. It goes as follows from, um, from Acts chapter 20. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul states, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me. These words from Paul are exactly the thoughts and actions of Ron, and the result is a crown of righteousness laid up in store for him. Praise God. So how good for her. So we'll see her back here next week, I'm sure, but um, in the meantime, we're going to take a minute and pray for her and pray for the family. Would you do that with me? Heavenly Father, we lift up to you uh, the Volutis family, especially Rosalie this morning, and as a community of believers, as a family here, our heart grieves for her and for the extended family, for sons and daughters and grandchildren and brothers and sisters who have lost a warrior So, Father, we ask that you would surround them with your love this week, especially this week, because what's gone behind them now is a a time of busyness and activity and making decisions. But tomorrow, the loneliness will be even more real. So I ask, Father, that you would be her comforter and that you would be her friend and be her source of strength, and that as well for the entire family. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I want to tell you a story that's incomplete, and you'll get the completion of it at the end of the message today. But the beginning part of it goes like this. When I was a third grader, I was in a classroom, and my teacher was Mrs. Gibbs. Now, Mrs. Gibbs was the ideal teacher. If you have the ideal third grade teacher in your mind, you've got Mrs. Gibbs in your mind. Little bun in her hair, slightly silver gray hair, and she had the most gentle voice. She was very tender when talking to the students. She read stories like no one. She made you want to read because she read with such enthusiasm. Mrs. Gibbs was trusted by everyone around her. 
And it was reciprocated from her students back to her. When she gave us instructions, we listened very closely and did what she asked us to do. Always obedient in her presence. Now, there came a particular day when Mrs. Gibbs announced to the classroom that she had to leave the classroom for 20 minutes. Now, Mrs. Gibbs said to the students, myself among them, students, I'm going to be going down the hall to a discussion with some other teachers. You will be unsupervised for 20 minutes. Can you imagine that happening today? A teacher leaves 20 third grade students in the classroom unsupervised for 20 minutes. And we all sat there like little soldiers, still as could be, until we heard the door click shut down the hallway. And chaos ensued. Chalk was flying, erasers were flying, paper wads were flying, and I'm looking around the classroom thinking, wait, this isn't the classroom I know when Mrs. Gibbs is in here. I've got to do something about this. So Mark Kring picked himself up, marched down the hallway, click, 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 went to the principal's office door, knock, knock, knock. Principal didn't respond. I turned around, and much to my horror, standing there was Mrs. Mallory. Now, Mrs. Mallory was the antithesis of Mrs. Gibbs. <laughs> and she did not like seeing elementary students out of their classroom during the class day. Mrs. Mallory said, Mr. Kring, looking down at me, she's very tall. She had a bun in her hair, but her hair was pulled back so tight her skin was stretched. <laughs> and she had eyes to match. Mr. Kring, what are you doing out of your classroom? And I stumbled through the words to tell her what was going down in the classroom. And she said, are you meaning to tell me that every single student in that classroom is going against what their teacher told them to do. I said, yes, every single one of them, you ought to see what's going on down there. Now, I thought that they would hear the clicking of her heels coming down the hallway. It echoed. I heard it very clearly, but the closer we got to the classroom, all I heard was laughter. So when she got to the classroom door, she stood there with her hands behind her back and watched the chaos for a moment. Then she pounded on the door very hard and said, Mrs. Gibbs, third grade class, come to attention. Everyone stopped in mid-throw, put their arms down. She said, as a class, you will sit down, take out a piece of paper, and you will write for the next 20 minutes an apology note to Mrs. Gibbs, upon which when she returns to this classroom, you will walk up to her one by one and present your apology note to her, explaining what you did wrong, and then you will take your seat again. I stood there beaming. She said, Mr. Kring reported to me what you did. <laughs> Thanks, Mrs. Mallory. Then she turned and looked at me, and she said, Mr. Kring, why are you not writing? The rest of the class is. I said, well, they were all doing it. She said, you told me everyone in the classroom was participating. I didn't mean me. She said, you said everyone. Everyone was guilty. At which, at that command, I sat down and began to write the note. Now, take that story, put it on the shelf. I'll tell you the end to it in just a few minutes as we finish up this teaching. Now, if you come with me back to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, you'll open up your Bibles to where we left off last time we were in Revelation. So open up now to Revelation chapter 14, and you'll be reminded very quickly that the first six verses, or the first five verses, we're talking about this 144,000 that we learned about in the beginning of Revelation. And then we saw a picture of them at the end of the tribulation in those first five verses. Now where we pick up in chapter, or chapter 14, verse 6, 
we get to see a zoom lens that was focused in very tightly on the 144. Now it's backing off to a wide-angle image. And the wide-angle image that we get from verse 6 to verse 20 is an overall comprehensive view of the last part of the tribulation period. Think of it in terms of being like a preview of coming attractions. You go to the movie theater, you sit down, and it seems like it goes on forever, but they show you previews of coming movies. That's what chapter 14 is like in these remaining verses. It's a preview, not in detail, but an overarching preview of what's coming next. So pick up with me in verse 6 of chapter 14. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. So when John looks and he says he looked and saw an angel in mid-heaven, specifically the Greek word is saying noonday, the high part, the apex of the sun. He's looking at the highest point of the sky. Everyone can see this being. And what is this being doing? It's preaching a gospel, but not specifically a gospel like we use the phrase so loosely. It says an eternal gospel, an everlasting gospel. Why is that word used? It's important that you get this word down, eternal, because it applies to where we're going in this text. The word eternal means this, and it's pronounced ienos. It's a difficult one. I'll take my Greek hat off. I-I-A-I-O-N-I-O-S. Ionios. There we go. So the shortened version of it is ion, A-I-O-N. Ionios means the extended version goes on and on. So look at the definition for it. Eternal, forever, everlasting, perpetual. Okay? So the gospel that he's declaring means there's an eternal salvation, meaning it relates to all of eternity, and it's a gospel of salvation. It's told specifically that this gospel impacts eternity for the beings on earth. What is this gospel that it's talking about? Jesus promised that before the end of the world would come, that every single person on planet earth would hear the gospel, the gospel of salvation, that the end wouldn't come until it happens. So this angel's role is to reach anyone who hasn't heard yet. So what we see here going on in earth's very darkest hour, the bleakest time ever in the history of man, God gives one final opportunity. Pay attention! Listen, there's a message here to be told. Doom is coming, judgment is coming, and it says specifically every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people group. Comprehensive, every single person. What's the message? Look closely at the text. Fear God and give him glory. Now, does it not seem redundant at this point? I think where we've been, all the way back to Revelation 1, moving forward over the last 28 weeks, plague, massive death, burning up of the grass, burning up of the green things, water turned to blood in the oceans, two-thirds of the earth's population in some way killed. 
We've seen this warning over and over and over again. Yet here, in these last times, God's exhibiting grace. He's giving one last chance. Fear God and give him glory. So you see here the God of grace and the God of mercy saying, it's not too late. Change your behavior and come back to me. He's calling sinners again. And look how he's doing it. The angel says, worship him who did what? Who made heaven, earth, sea, and springs of water. In other words, creation. The created universe is all the evidence that's necessary to speak against sinful behavior and say, wow, look how magnificent this planet is that we live on. There is a God of order behind this. How could this exist absent of a God of order? a God who planned and purposed it. That's why Romans 1 says, no man will die with an excuse. Matter of fact, it specifically says man is without excuse because of creation. So this angel is pointing everyone and saying, worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of waters. Look at creation and allow it to call you back to God. He's echoing what the Old Testament writer said. Look with me on the screen, Psalms 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Old Testament not enough for you? Jump forward to Revelation chapter 4. We're in the throne room and we see what? Angels falling down before God. Scripture says myriads upon myriads thousands upon thousands. And what do they declare? Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Don't let anyone tell you the creation argument is not important to your walk with Christ. It absolutely, emphatically speaks of his majesty. Don't let anyone deny you of that. It is the very expression of his greatness. All of Scripture claims it. So followed up very quickly by that, a second angel appears on the scene, verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So you know here the second angel doesn't begin speaking good news. This angel begins speaking about judgment. And what's it talking about? Babylon. Apparently, when Antichrist arrives on the scene, all of his political power, all of his financial strength, all of his military strength, and all of his spiritual, quote-unquote, religious strength is going to be encompassed in this realm known as what Scripture calls Babylon. Whether it's a literal city or not, we do not know. Does it represent one of the major cities of the world? We do not know. But full circle, history repeats itself because Babylon was the ancient empire in the Old Testament which rebelled against God and resisted and pushed away from God, rejecting everything that God said man was supposed to do. So here we see full circle, history repeating itself, and so Scripture says, she made all the nations drink of her immorality. So Babylon in Scripture is personified as a harlot. You'll learn more about the destruction of Babylon itself, the empire, in chapter 16. 
So now a third angel shows up, verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Now, this third angel that shows up has this word associated with it that you learned a few weeks ago, megas. It says the voice of the angel was huge, a megas voice, a large, loud voice. Why? So that all of creation could hear it. No one could deny that they hadn't heard this warning. First angel, proclaiming the good news. Second angel saying, turn to God. Look at his creation. Third angel now showing up saying emphatically, if anyone rejects God, they have a serious outcome to deal with. Talking about the wrath of God being represented by a cup of wine. Now that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I'll show you on the screen. Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations whom I send you to to drink it. This goes back to when God was talking to Jeremiah, the prophet to Israel. And he said, Jeremiah, you're going to go out and proclaim to the nations, if they reject me, they're going to drink from my wrath. So this picture is being repeated again in Revelation. God's wrath that's been restrained through history is about to be unleashed. So the next time we get together and we look at the book of Revelation, we're going to be looking at Revelation 15, and that begins the seven final bowl, B-O-W-L, judgments, the final judgment. So this is a setup to it, saying God's wrath is about to be unleashed on the earth. John MacArthur had an interesting quote in the way that he summed this statement up. Let me show you it up on the screen. Such wrath is not an impulsive outburst of divine emotion aimed at people whimsically. It is the settled, deliberate, merciless, graceless response of the righteous God against all sinners. I'll put that in context. He's talking about in the last days. After people have rejected God, stiff-armed him and pushed him away, This time will come without mercy. This time will come without grace because it's undiluted wrath. Let me show you this in in the text. It says specifically that it's mixed in full strength. The Greek definition literally reads mixed, unmixed. Here's the definition for it. Akratos, undiluted without mixture. And this is what it's referring to. The ancients had a method by which they would take wine and would dilute it with water, making it a weakened strength wine. You see an example of that in Jesus' first miracle when he went to the wedding in Cana. And Jesus performed the miracle. They had great wine. Well, what they're explaining here is that God's wine, his wine of the wrath of, of his anger, will be undiluted. There's no mixture. There's nothing to weaken it. There's no trace of compassion. Now, what we step into here, church, this next portion, I step into with a profound understanding that I can't hesitate at all. Many churches hesitate to teach this truth that's coming next, but it is a truth of Scripture. And so I enter into it with sorrow on my heart. 
but unhesitatingly, we move forward to look at what happens to those who reject God. And hear me very clearly on this. It is not our position as followers of Jesus Christ to condemn anyone. That is God's role. He is the judge. Scripture explains very clearly he alone makes the decisions about the outcome of individuals' lives. But what he says right here in verse 10 is that those who reject him will meet with a destiny they never anticipated being so wrathful. Look at the definition and we'll look at the explanation. Verse 10, section B. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now clearly in the context of this, we're talking about individuals who are worshiping Satan. They have taken the mark of the beast and they have said, no way to God. I want nothing to do with you. And this is what scripture says is their outcome. But look how clearly the definition explains what happens to someone who is cast from God's presence. First of all, it says they're tormented with ceaseless infliction, ceaseless unbearable pain. It never stops. No diminishing of the torment. No moments of rest. All that is right there in the text. They're banished from God's loving presence. Not in his presence anymore and no chance of being there. Now note with me, it says that Jesus and the angels view this torment. That they're there and they're witnessing this when those are cast away. I don't know how to explain that. I don't know how utter holiness and absolute purity can watch this. But that's the case. Now that word that I showed you a few minutes ago, ionios, is used here again. And that's why I wanted you to get it down. Look at the definition again. Perpetual, eternal, forever, everlasting. Here's why it's very important to get this down, church. There are many liberal theologians who are teaching that hell is a temporary state. It is not permanent. There are many faiths who teach God would never do that. If that is true, then heaven is not eternal also because the exact same word, ionios, is used of the eternity of heaven. It is also used of the eternity of God's word. In other words, if hell is not eternal, then heaven's not eternal and God's word is not eternal. And we got nothing. Okay, you understand that? That same word is used. So what scripture is saying here, it's an explicit teaching of the Bible. Those who are banished from God's presence, it's forever and forever. I understand this upsets people. It upsets me. And it should. You're full of human emotion. And it makes us want to recoil. How can a God of love possibly take his creation? and banish them and torment them. How is that a God of love? The truth is this. God's love is holy and just. It is not based on sentimentality. Our love is based on sentiment and emotion. God's love is based on justice and purity. 
And therefore, he has to judge injustice and holiness and purity. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. He is holy. Therefore, he must judge righteously. And that boggles our mind. Now, eternity of heaven, the eternity of God's word, emphasizes that the eternity of hell is real. Now, at this point, the text takes a break. It just kind of puts the brakes on and stops, okay? We're not talking about hell. It jumps into talking about the believers. Verse 12, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now, that's an odd place to place that, isn't it? Very odd place to put that particular verse. It's to remind believers who persevere, who push through, who endure, who are faithful to God, who are faithful to their commitment in Jesus Christ, that you have the hope of salvation. Look at this again. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now, don't you have to ask yourself this question? These people, these tribulation saints, are living in the worst time in the history of the world, yet they're able to persevere to the end. They're hanging on to the very end to their faith. Who's really doing the hanging on at this point? God. God is holding them and embracing them because they belong to him. Look with me at the text, Psalms 37, 34. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who, what church? Who holds his hand. God holds the believer. God protects the believer. Now, that's not to say that a believer can go out and live however they want. They can live like hell because they belong to Jesus. That's not what the text is teaching. What it's saying is true believers are identifiable. Because why? It says it right there. Because they keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I'm not teaching that someone can't make mistakes. We are all full of mistakes in our lives, every single one of us. And it's the grace and mercy of God that draws us back in. But what the text is teaching is those who are identifiable, the perseverance of the saints, they're faithful to God and his commandments and their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, John sees something very remarkable. He hears this voice coming from heaven, and it's talking about those who die in the Lord. Verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Now, if we take this in context, it's specifically talking about the tribulation believers at this point. There's a principle that's there, though. Here it says, from now on, meaning those who are in the tribulation, those who die They're in the Lord, and their deeds are going to follow with them, and they're going to rest from their labors because they've lived in this terrible time of persecution. But the principle still applies to all of us. Are we blessed if we die in the Lord? Yeah? Are we blessed if we die in the Lord? Absolutely. Come on, this is participatory, you guys. Okay? We are blessed if we die in the Lord, and our deeds do follow with us. And we rest from our labors. So while this is speaking about all of us, in the context, it's talking about the tribulation saints. They're fortunate because they've been through some 
horrible time. And that's why you see the Holy Spirit, who cares about every one of us, saying, yes, absolutely yes, with a strong affirmation. And then John gets a whole new shocking vision. Let's look at what he saw. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now remember, John has never seen Jesus like this before. John has seen Jesus on the cross. John has seen Jesus at the ascension. John has seen Jesus walking along the shore side. He's even seen him in Revelation 1, like we saw in the beginning, as the lamb that had been slain. But he's never seen him on a cloud with a diadema on his head, this crown, the ruler coming back. Remember Jesus' first coming was in humiliation? So that's what John's accustomed to. Look with me up on the screen, Philippians 2.6. Although he existed, speaking of Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John understood that. Jesus came as the humble servant. Now he's returning as the supreme king. Jesus came in humility. Now he's coming in majesty and glory. Do you remember the last question asked of Jesus before he was crucified? Sanhedrin is gathered together. They have him on trial in the courtroom. And one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin says to him, Tell us the truth. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Now, this is a man who's about to be killed because of what he believes. What was his response, church? Look with me up on the screen. You'll see it, Mark 14, 62. I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's what John saw, the approach of Jesus Christ returning to earth. That's why he says, wow. Behold, the word is I do, I-D-O-O-U. And it means he was shocked. Now, what does he see in Jesus' hand? He sees a sickle. Any of you that grew up on a farm knows what a sickle is. If you haven't seen one in the history books, I'll explain it for you, but it's got a long wooden handle with a sharp metal blade, and the harvester takes it and swings it across the crop. And the blade is so sharp, it harvests everything in its path, cutting it down. You see here the image of Jesus reaping his enemies, cutting down the path, cutting across the field. Why? Because we're told specifically that the earth is ripe. Look with me at verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. Now remember, first three angels that showed up, they're pronouncing that judgment is coming. The fourth one shows up and brings a command of judgment saying it's time to carry it out. And he's got a loud voice too, a megas voice, and he shouts it out. But here's something very interesting, church. 
an angel tells the Son of God what to do. An angel brings a command. Another angel came from where? Out of the temple, crying out with a megas voice to him who sat on the cloud. Understand, this is a theologically profound moment. Here's why. Remember what Jesus said about all judgment had been given to him by the Father? It comes from John chapter 5 and verse 22. This is what Jesus said. I'll read it for you. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. Verse 22. For not even... For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. This is the moment in time in which God sends the command from an angel to the Son, saying, it's time to judge the earth and to cut down your enemies. That's what's unfolding here. This word used specifically saying it's ripe for judgment. You'll see it up on the screen. Ex rainio, shrivel, mature, dried up, be ripe, wither away. It's a phrase that was used by fruit farmers speaking specifically when their fruit was rotted, when it was no longer good for anything, when it was beyond the point of any use whatsoever. So this command comes from God to the Son saying, it's time, they are no longer redeemable. Harvest the earth, cut down your enemies. So it says he swung the sickle and the earth was reaped. This is one of the most straightforward, sobering statements in all of Scripture. Jesus, without any hesitation, straightforward, without fanfare, carries out the judgment. The Father commands it, the Son carries it out. And Jesus implements judgment because he's the judge. You'll find in a couple weeks that the gruesome details of what takes place during this period of time will unfold in Revelation chapter 16. It's very specific and it's very horrific about what will happen when this battle takes place, these last seven bowl judgments. And it culminates in one thing. It culminates in what we call the battle of Armageddon. Look with me at the next verse, verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. Now notice, there's two angels there. One's coming from the temple. One's coming from the altar. What do you know about the altar? Think back with me to Revelation chapter 6. We saw the altar in heaven. What was going on in front of that altar? The saints of God, the believers, sitting before the altar, crying out to God, how long, O God, before you bring judgment upon the earth? How long? And their prayers were ascending before God. Now put on your Old Testament thinking caps, those of you that were raised in church. Think back to the time of the priest, the time of the temple. A priest would go into the temple and what would he do? He would take fire from the altar. He would ignite the incense and the incense would go up before God, representing the prayers of the saints. Outside the temple, all the believers of God were praying. 
So the incense going up before God, representing the prayers of the saints, very similar to what you learned in Revelation 6, when people are crying out saying, God, take out vengeance upon the earth. Destroy those people who killed us. So you see this one angel coming out of the temple, and you see another angel coming from the altar, and it says he has power over the fire, the fire from the altar. And what's going to be carried out here is an answer to the prayers of the saints, saying, bring vengeance upon our death. We were killed for your name, and God's going to carry it out. So the unrepentant believer, the unrepentant sinners are called clusters of grapes. They're the ones that are on the vine. So there's a grape harvest that's going to take place. Any of you ever seen a grape harvest take place? Perhaps you've seen reruns of the Lucy shows, and you saw Lucy dancing in the vat. Perhaps you remember that. Now, common in Italy, not done so much today because I think the health administrations would have real problem with people with bare feet crushing grapes. But there was a time when people would get into a wine vat, a wine vat and crush the grapes with their feet. This was very vivid imagery for people of the Old and New Testament times. That's what's described here next. Verse 19 wraps this up. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now you would look at that and say, well, we're talking about wine. Where does blood come from? How in the world does blood get in there? And the winepress was trodden from outside the city, and blood came up from the winepress to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Very quickly, all the enemies of God are gathered into one location that represents the winepress. It's called the Valley of Armageddon or the Valley of Megiddo. If you've been to the Middle East, you've perhaps seen this area. It's a very long spance. Scripture promises the very last battle, the last war of mankind, will be in the valley of Armageddon. It's a wide expanse, and it will host millions of people. Scripture says there will be millions there, so much so there will be so much blood spilt that it will spatter up to a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. That's how many will be killed. Now, you and I, we've heard the phrase, Battle of Armageddon. This is not a battle. This is not a battle in any form whatsoever. This is, if you describe this as a battle, you'd have to say that Mark Kring could have a battle with Mike Tyson in the boxing ring. I mean, there'd be one punch and I'd be gone, okay? Now, Matt Hall believes I could go two rounds with him, but I don't think so. Matt told me that after the first service. I think you could hang in there. And I said, yeah, if you prop me up and hold me. But with one punch, you're down. That's what you're seeing here. This is not a battle. A battle implies there's a struggle back and forth. What Scripture tells us, and you need to read this later today yourself, Revelation chapter 19, you'll see the explanation of the outcome of the battle of Armageddon in which the king arrives and with one word, his enemies are wiped out. The word of the power of God. So you can put this together. These individuals will learn very quickly it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what Scripture says, doesn't it? 
Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So here's the central message, church, from this text. God is not to be trifled with. Yes, he is a God of mercy and justice. And fortunately, we live in a day of grace in which he forgives our wrongs. But our God is not to be forgotten. He is not to be trifled with. He will judge his enemies. He will be victorious over Satan. And he will punish those who oppose him. It will happen. You can count on it. In his first coming, he came in humility. His second coming, majesty. And we can all use that word, wow, behold, look at this. It's amazing. Because when he comes again, he comes as conqueror. He comes to conquer the earth because he comes as a judge. But here's the truth. Today is a day of grace and forgiveness because every one of us are guilty. Even the third graders in Mrs. Gibbs' classroom. What Mark Kring didn't know when he marched himself down the hallway to the principal's office and knocked on the door is that Mrs. Mallory had been following me. So when I turned around and saw her, to my shock, I thought she was just in the office. She had been quietly stepping behind me to see what I was going to do. So she followed me back to the classroom, gave her command to everyone, and turned to me and said, Are you not all guilty, Mr. Kring? Do you remember that part? I said, Not me. I didn't mean me. What Mark Kring didn't know is that prior to that, Mrs. Mallory had been standing outside the classroom and saw Mark Kring chucking erasers and throwing paper wads. And she knew I was guilty too. We are all guilty, church. Every one of us has offended God in some way and sinned. Every one of us can be redeemed and forgiven of those sins. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, our time together has gone fast, and we're going to move on to our activities today. But we ask, because this is such important information, Father, I ask that you not let it quickly escape from our mind. I know how beautiful it is outside and how many conversations we're going to have today. But, Father, at least during this day, please remind us of the truth of this passage so that we feel the intensity and the boldness behind it, the requirement to make sure that our lives are right with you. Because, Father, the truth is we are all guilty, every single one of us. And absent of salvation through the King of Kings, we have no hope. But in you, because of what you did through the saving work of your Son, Jesus Christ, we have hope. Father, I ask that you make this church bold on your behalf. Make us strong witnesses for your kingdom. We ask this in the mighty name of our soon-coming king. Amen. If you ever have a time when you'd like to talk about these things, you want to have a discussion, I am more than happy to do so. Just let me know. Have a great week, church.